my name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, The Story Podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 36, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Exodus 13 and 14, Leviticus 10, and Psalms 53. Exodus 13. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male. The first offspring of every womb among the Israelites belongs to me, whether human or animal. Then Moses said to the people, Commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with a mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. Today, in the month of Aviv, you are leaving. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Hivites, Jebusites, the land he swore to your ancestors to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you are to observe this ceremony in this month. For seven days, eating bread made without yeast, and on the seventh day, hold a festival to the Lord. Eat unleavened bread during those seven days. Nothing with yeast in it is to be seen among you, nor shall any yeast be seen anywhere within your borders. On that day, tell your son, I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. This observance will be for you like a sign on your hand and a reminder on your forehead that this law of the Lord is to be on your lips. For the Lord brought you out of Egypt with his mighty hand. You must keep this ordinance at the appointed time year after year. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you, as he promised it on an oath to you and your ancestors, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. In days to come, when your sons ask you, what does this mean? Say to him, with a mighty hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. When Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed the firstborn of both people and animals in Egypt. This is why I sacrifice to the Lord the first male offspring of every womb and redeem each of my firstborn sons. And it will be like a sign on your hand and a symbol on your forehead that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with his mighty hand. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. The Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. After leaving Succoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. By day, the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Harath, between Migdal and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea. 
directly opposite Baal Nafon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So he had his chariots made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh's king of Egypt so that he pursued the Israelites, who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Harath, opposite Baal-Nafon. As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians, marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the angel of God who had been traveling in front of Israel's army withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved in front and stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout throughout the night, the clouds brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground. With a wall of water on the right and on the left, the Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, Let's go, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hands over the sea, and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it, and the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen. The entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on the right and on their left. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Leviticus 10 Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abu, took their censers, 
put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when he said, Among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. Moses summoned Michelle and Elzaphan, sons of Aaron's uncle Uziel, and said to them, Come here, carry your cousins outside the camp, away from the front of the sanctuary. So they came and carried them, still in their tunics, outside the camp, as Moses ordered. Then Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Do not let your hair become unkept, and do not tear your clothes, or you will die, and the Lord will be angry with the whole community. But your relatives, all the Israelites, may mourn for those the Lord has destroyed by fire. Do not leave the entrance to the tent of meeting, or you will die, because the Lord's anointing oil is on you. So they did as Moses said. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting, or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, so that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean. And so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. Moses said to Aaron and his remaining sons, Eleazar and Ithamar, Take the grain offering left over from the food offering, prepared without yeast and presented to the Lord, and eat beside the altar, for it is most holy. Eat in the sanctuary area, because it is your share and your son's share of the food offering presented to the Lord. For so I have commanded. But you and your sons and your daughters may eat the breast that was waved and the thigh that was presented. Eat them in a ceremonially clean place. They have been given to you and your children as your share of the Israelites' fellowship offering. The thigh that was presented and the breast that was waved must be brought with the fat portion of the offering, food offering, to be waved before the Lord as a wave offering. This will be the perpetual share for you and your children, as the Lord has commanded. When Moses inquired about the goat of the sin offering and found that it had been burned up, he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, Aaron's remaining sons, and asked, Why didn't you eat the sin offering in the sanctuary area? It is most holy. It was given to you to take away the guilt of the community by making atonement for them before the Lord. Since its blood was taken into the holy place, you should have eaten the goat in the sanctuary area, as I commanded. Aaron replied to Moses, Today they sacrificed their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, but such things as this have happened to me. Would the Lord have been pleased if I had eaten the sin offering today? When Moses heard this, he was satisfied. Psalms 53 The fool says in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt and their ways are vile. There is no one who does good. God looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. Everyone has turned away. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do all these evildoers know nothing? They devour my people as though eating bread. They never call on God. But there they are, overwhelmed with dread, where there was nothing to dread. God scattered the bones of those who attacked you. You put them to shame, for God despised them. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When God restored his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad.
All right, so we're at the actual exodus. The Israelites have, have, are going to cross the Sea of Reeds, according to the Hebrew Bible, and our Bible calls it the Red Sea, which could have been, but the Hebrew Bible seems less specific. Dr. Carmen Imes gives James Hoffmeyer, an Egyptian, an evangelical that gives more insights on this. I'll link it in the show notes. And remember, in Hebrew, Moses' name means the one who draws out. And if we look back, we remember that Moses' mother put Moses in a river with reeds. So there's this connection going on here. Um, And it, it could be the Red Sea, but it could be any number of seas. And this is a really cool place in the story. I also wanted to attend to the verse in chapter 14, verse 4, which reads, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Throughout the plagues, Dr. Carmen Imes gives his Hebrew language insight into the pattern and frequency of the use of the word heavy, where God sends heavy swarms of flies, heavy plagues on livestock, heavy hail, and heavy locusts in response to Pharaoh's heart. But in Hebrew, it's actually heavy heart. In Dr. Carmen Imes' Bible Project Exodus class, which I love, she also clarifies that the word for glory in Hebrew actually means heaviness here in verse 4, 17, and 18. This is so interesting because I think of the word glory in my language and time as like lifting up on a pedestal if we're talking about a person, like to that person's fame, if you will. And then when I think of glory of God, I think of, you know, his radiance and like the very presence of God, right? So Dr. Carmen Imes also suggests the Biblical Scholarship and Bible Project podcast interview with Dr. Haley Gorenson-Jacob, who did her dissertation on the word glory, how cool is that, and found it was not necessarily light or importance per se, but perhaps it can be better understood in some cases as reputation. Again, my brain goes to branding, the story, the action reaction. It all ties back to the name and image of the actor, which is God in this case. In the Gospel of John, a New Testament book we'll get to, it describes how Jesus on the cross is a display of God's glory. It's displaying his immutable character, specifically the links he will be going to to be our savior. So glory is this really complex, dynamic concept in the Bible used in both um, Hebrew ancient language and then in, in Greek in the New Testament, and Paul uses it in really cool ways. So I will definitely link her dissertation, and which has been put into a book in the show notes. If we zoom out and see glory and its use, as Dr. Haley did, throughout the Bible— pointing to who God is and his reputation, I think it becomes something much bigger than just um, when we get too close to one thing and we see it in our language and way and we're like, huh, that doesn't seem right. It's probably a good sign that maybe maybe it's not, it's more complicated. But that doesn't mean that we make it something it isn't, but I always find, probably as an academic, content analysis and cross-referencing inside the Bible can help us. Back to the story of Exodus. While I know some of you have, may have heard, like I have, um, that some argue the river that they crossed was only five inches deep. I'm not exactly sure the source of this, but I have heard it. So they think this isn't really a miracle. And it makes a bit of sense until you consider that God used the same river to drown the Egyptian army that was following the Israelites with walls of water and that the ground of the Israelites that they crossed, um, it's, in Hebrew, it's written as dry in the same way that the word dry is used in Genesis when God separated the waters from the land. So 
something else is going on here and something much more awesome. So we're continually being triggered to think back to creation. I love this so much. Dr. Terence Friedman wrote a paper and lots of other great stuff which describe how we as modern readers tend to read Genesis in light of Exodus, where creation is understood um, in the light of redemption, when it actually seems clear that we must reverse the order where Exodus is understood in light of Genesis and redemption and law in light of creation. So cool. I link his article in the show notes. Okay, so what do we have to say about verse 37? That was, I think, at the end of the last one. 600,000 men, not counting women and children, which Dr. Kramenheim says would make the Israelites something like 2 million people, and most archaeologists uh, don't support this. And if you think of Exodus 6, verse 14 to 25, where 12 brothers, four generations make this many, is kind of hard to explain. There are other logical problems, but the point is not, in all caps, that God could not do this or that this could not be true. It could. It just doesn't seem like that's what's being said here. Some suggest that the numbers are rhetorical or symbolic. Ronard Allen suggests um, rhetorical could be a multiplier of 10. Um, That one's a little hard to figure out. Dr. Terrence Friedman suggests this could be a number from a later period that they sort of put back into it, which is also a little bit hard for me to wrap my brain around. Some see it as mistranslated, as as more accurate as 600 military families plus plus their children, right? So it's interesting to note that Hebrew didn't use numerals. Uh, Can you imagine a world without numbers? I mean, everyone who hates math right now would be like, yay, but Hebrews did not use numerals. Instead, they spelled out numbers in full. So aleph in Hebrew, which could mean a thousand, can also mean a military unit or a patriarchal clan or tribe. Other places aleph is used are Judges 6.15 and Joshua 22, verse 14. And in those places, it is not 100,000. Charlie Trim from SBL Press wrote a book on warfare in the ancient Near East, and he finds that a military unit is about 6 to 20 men. Meaning, if there were 600 military units, this would be about 5,500 men and about 22,000 total people, according to Charlie Trim, and as reported in Dr. Kimes, Imes' uh, Exodus class on the Bible Project. Dr. Carmen Imes suggests someone do their dissertation on this. So if you're interested, there's a topic. Figure out, was it really 600,000 or was it something else? In my opinion, I think uh, tr- maybe interpreting LF a thousand more as a military unit as it is in Judges and in Joshua might make more sense here. So in Leviticus 10, we begin to see what it means to put God on display as a priest and to differentiate our image and name as brand ambassadors for our own audience and those neighboring groups watching who this Israelite Israelite nation is, what we're all about, and who this God of ours is, right? So Leviticus, in part, is a brand book. It's the instructions for the brand story that God wants to tell by putting him on display in what we do, how we do it, when, and where. In marketing, it's common to think about and plan these details out for brand cohesiveness and for the purpose of building trust and being consistent with our values and mission. Now, I I will say that we don't kill people who don't follow along with it, but it is an economic death, if you will. You can very quickly and easily get fired um, by being inconsistent and not representing a brand well. We've all seen social media where somebody on their personal accounts says and does something inconsistent with the brand or organization they work for, 
And lo and behold, they get fired. This book, Leviticus, is a little bit like a brand book. It contains the main values and principles of a priest, someone who accepts their appointment and commission to put God on display. Through grace, this is his offer, and we can either accept it or reject it. This brand book sets specific guidelines for perpetuating God's brand, his name and his image, his identity, and all of the external and internal communication, like even the nonverbals. Symbols and colors, and we'll see this more and more as we read on, and images and tone are all a part of it. They really do matter. It's a visual and lifestyle communication guide. Consistency helps with brand awareness, recognition, even loyalty. It's also important to note that target audience is essential in branding. To position the right guidelines into a specific context where that content translates in the best ways. So it's important to note what God is doing to put himself on display in this cultural context. Because, to me anyway, it seems reasonable to assume, based on the larger story of Scripture, that God is continuing to ask us to put him on display. And when we zoom into what it means to be a priest and become a kingdom of priests, this becomes conceptually clearer. The question becomes, how can we take what God is doing here with integrity and consistency and put it into practice in our culture and time? How can we put God on display in our stories that points to the story in all capitals with what we do, what we don't do, how, where, when? Can we think about all the details of symbols? Are we telling? Is it connected to God's story? Now, there might be a tendency to want to prescribe this, control it, and be overwhelmed by it. But I think that would be missing the point. The heart of what it means to be and become a kingdom of priests by putting God on display helping others navigate to Jesus for atonement, interceding in prayer for others to God, and giving resources to those who are in need, those are categorically clearer. Um, and, and I think, you know, we don't want to get too lost in the details, but also not ignore them. I think we should have these discussions and test our ideas, but try not to marshal individual authority or to ourselves or ascribe to other individuals, humans, or groups. And at the same time, try to avoid a complete sense of relativity and individualism because either extreme suffers from the same problem, no accountability. And God is clearly suggesting a train-the-trainer model where understanding is enriched through mentorship and apprenticeship and there is also a sense of disseminating authority and shared accountability. A lot to think about, wrestle with, and chew on for sure. One thing to clarify, when I say train the trainer model, I am not referring to like a multi-level marketing strategy where we become Christians to make other Christians. I think this minimizes and perhaps misconstrues what God is doing and saying. God is seeking to restore and redeem our vocation. And if we lean into what it is saying about being a priest in a kingdom of priests, as, as I say over and over, I think it's so cool how Marty Solomon synthesizes this on his research. There are at least four things mentioned that will help us fulfill this ruling and subduing in a priest-like way. Dr. Haley focuses at the end of her interview with Dr. Tim Mackey and John Collins on her book, Conformed to the Image of His Son, Reconsidering Paul's Theology of Glory in Roman. Romans shows individuals and churches can be focusing on helping to meet the needs of those suffering in their neighborhoods. How can we intercede in prayer, groaning, and with the hurting as we pray to God for healing, restoration, redemption, and renewal of all that suffering and creation? In this part of the story, and in the end, spoiler alert, there is a being and becoming. There is a now and a not yet. The story is continuing to unfold today, and we are called into it with the promise that God has, 
is and will work, and he's calling us into it to be a part of it. There is more to this story, and I can't wait. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.